we can't tell people that we care without actually doing something to show them that we care. You got to take the time to learn about people, learn their background, learn what's important to them, where they come from, what makes them tick, what inspires them, what motivates them, what pisses them off, their struggles, what their aspirations are. Welcome to the Imperfectly Empowered Podcast with leading DIY lifestyle blogger, Anna Fulmer, where women are inspired with authentic stories and practical strategies to reclaim their hearts and homes by empowering transformation, one imperfect day at a time. Welcome to another episode of the Imperfectly Empowered Podcast. I am your host, Anna Fulmer. Today, it is my honor and pleasure to introduce to you Anton Gunn. Anton is the former senior advisor to President Barack Obama and a leading authority on socially conscious leadership. An international speaker and consultant, he is the best-selling author of The Presidential Principles and renowned for his message on establishing world-class culture in the workplace by creating admired leaders. Featured by Time Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, Inc. Magazine, BBC, MBR, and Good Morning America, to name a few. Welcome, admired leader and my friend, Anton Gunn. Well, Anton, welcome to the Imperfectly Empowered podcast. I am honored to have you here. You shifted your schedule around to be here, and I am incredibly grateful. So for people listening and watching, I have to tell you a quick story about Anton. We met at a conference, and it was one of those conferences, and it was an amazing event, but it was the whole point of it was to network. So people would talk, and then the rest of us would give feedback. And anytime you're at an event like that, there's always a lot of feedback and there's so many great voices, but there's fluff advice. And then there's like advice that you can sink your teeth into. And I remember the first time you got up and you gave your feedback to somebody. I remember doing one of these, like, Hmm, like, who is that? Who is that speaking? Because that was like, I was like, mm, this guy speaks my language. It's advice that you can sink your teeth into. It's not the yeah. fluffy kind that like a strong gust of wind would blow it away. So that is my first impression of you is like, this is a guy that I need to talk to because you do, you just are so good at giving feedback in a way that you can do something with. You're a oh, doer, you're a shaker and a mover. Oh, thank you so very much. <laughs> Nothing fluffy about this man. So I think it was just a couple of years ago, one or two, that you were playing football for the University of South Carolina. Is that right? The O-line to be exact? Mm-hmm. Well, you say a couple of years ago, let me be honest. Um, I actually haven't played college football in almost 30 years. Some people tell me I look a lot younger than I actually am, but my last college football season was 1994. And I feel like I've lived like 15 lives since then. But <laughs> yeah, football is a part of my life. I love it. It's football season and uh, yeah. college and pro doesn't matter what you're watching. It's still a great time of year where people gather and enjoy the game. And the game was a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that. We're huge football fans over here. I don't know if you know this, but my husband's been a coach for, I think, eight years now. Oh, wow. um, yeah, high school coach. He was the head coach. He's now working as an assistant because of all of our little rascals running around. So we're huge football fans over here. My kids have grown up on the sidelines, in the stands. Zach and I were, my husband and I were both athletes. And we know how valuable sports are not just for the competitive and the discipline aspect to it, but also the value in teaching Mm -hmm. and inspiring these concepts of leadership, not to mention Mm -hmm. diversity. It's one of the Mm -hmm. rare places that people of all 
tongues, tribes, and nations literally come together as one and play. They have the same goal in the end. How did your years in sports growing up help shape from a young age that view of leadership and diversity in your experience? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you're so right. I mean, there were so many lessons that sports taught me, both good and bad. And I always talk about them both. So first and foremost, when you're an offensive lineman, the greatest lesson that you learn in sports when you're playing offensive line is that it's not about you. Leadership is not about you. And what do I mean it's not about you? You don't ever really hear an offensive lineman's name until they make a mistake. I mean, their whole job is to work hard so other people can get the glory and the success and the achievements. And their role is just a background role. That's the lesson number one. Lesson number two, that you can't achieve anything by yourself. As an offensive lineman, you work as a unit. There are five people on the line. You have a center, you have two guards, and two tackles. Those are the core of the offensive line. Sometimes you add a tight end, but generally speaking, it's a center, two guards, and two tackles. And the main point is that you five have to work in unison. You have to be on the same page, or as one of my coaches used to refer to it, we have to have the same heartbeat. We have to move in unison, know what each other's doing, have each other's back, be aware of what the challenges that the other person is dealing with at the other end of the offensive line. And so those are two great lessons for every leader is, number one, it's not about you, and you shouldn't try to get all the credit. The team gets all the credit. Your job is to put people in position to be successful. And number two, you got to work collectively if you want to achieve anything that matters. And that's literally what I learned from the offensive line. But I played multiple positions before I was an offensive lineman. I was a tight end in high school and I used to catch touchdowns. And so for me, that was about outthinking my opponent. So whenever you face opposition, you got to figure out how to beat the opposition or beat your competition, if you will, whatever mm-hmm. it is. So when we're facing challenges in our organizations as leaders, you got to find a way to beat the opposition. That means you got to be on your A game all the time and don't take any play off. You got to focus and get the job done. Um, those are some of the things that I learned. Can you speak at all to, so you played in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Can you think of a story or an example of a time where you may have had differences with a teammate off the field, because what happens in the locker room is not what happens on the field. And there's this concept of you lay all of that aside. When you step on the field, you are one, you play together, you work together. And I love that concept too in sports, because it speaks to this reality that I think we've really lost in our culture at the moment, that even if you disagree off the field, out of work, that should not inhibit us from being able to work together in a respectful manner to achieve the same goal. Can you think of a time in your sports career or an example where you had to play that out with another teammate and you saw success in your ability to grow and communicate and still work together despite off-the-field disagreements? Yeah, so, I mean, all the time. I played football in the Southeastern Conference, in the SEC And we had teammates who were from all over the country. I had a teammate who was from Compton, California, and went to high school in South Central Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I also had a teammate from Oklahoma. Those two places could be more different. I grew up in Beach, Virginia. I had teammates from Georgia, Florida, Connecticut, from all kinds of places, right? And so when people come from different backgrounds, they have different values and different things that are important to them that they care about. 
And there are many times when we were off the field, those disagreements raised their head every day. I mean, just how we saw things differently, how we communicated. I can't tell you how many off the field fights that people had in the dorm room or arguing over girlfriends and over who took my $20 off my desk or, you know, (laughs) who threw my notebook away. I mean, it doesn't matter what it was. Yeah. Those things happen off the field, but sometimes they actually carried onto the field, but they played themselves out in healthy competition. I remember two teammates who one was from Florida, another one was from Georgia. They were on two different sides of the ball, one offense, one defense. Their lockers were like five people apart. Their numbers were different, 45 and 50. They argued like crazy in the <laughs> locker room and off the field. I don't know what it was. I don't know what the situation was. I think it started with joking on each other. But when we got on the practice field, they literally started to call each other out in a drill. And the coaches said, well, let's get it on. And so they went head to head in a drill. And you know what it did more than anything else? It galvanized the rest of the team watching these two men go at it fiercely because we knew that there was a backstory of what was going on. But when it came to game time, they both had each other's back unequivocally because we all wore the same jersey. And so it's never into this place where you want to just say, I want to go along to get along and I'm just going to assume that we all have to be the same. No, you can talk out your differences. You can hash out your differences. But the most important thing is to remember that there is a team and that team is more important than any individual. And there's a mission, a game plan, a playbook or a goal for the team. And if you don't do your part, if you let your personal issues get in the way of the team, you won't achieve the success that you hope to achieve. I love that. It's hilarious. As you're talking, I'm thinking like, geez, this sounds like my marriage. (laughs) (laughs) It's like any relationship, right? right. I mean, even in marriage, when you are in the same home environment, it's like, all right, we are on opposite sides of the ball right now. We need to duke it out. (laughs) But at the end of the day, we are on the same team as we raise our kids, as we go through life. But I love the entire concept of success is not the absence of struggle. It's not the absence of disagreement and Mm -hmm. differences. It's how do we succeed maybe even because of those. Yes. Anyway, well, I love sports. I could do an hour just talking about sports, but yeah. we'll, we'll move on there. Booker T. Washington has this amazing quote. He said, success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life as by the obstacles which he has overcome. And mm-hmm. that quote is really all about what this podcast stands for. Mm-hmm. and talking about struggles and how we overcome. About 21 years ago now, I think it was, you faced an obstacle that mm-hmm. few in life ever face, let alone overcome. Tell us yeah. a little bit about what happened in October of 2000. Yeah, that's a great place to start. I actually remember it as if it was yesterday. It was mm-hmm. a Thursday morning, 8.30 a.m. I get up, I was in graduate school in South Carolina. I get up and I'm getting dressed, getting ready to go to class. And I'm watching today's show as I do every morning before I leave the house. And I hear on the news that there was an explosion aboard a United States ship called the USS Cole. And my brother at the time was in the Navy and I knew his ship was traveling on the ocean, but I didn't know they were in a port in the Middle East. And I hear this on the news that morning. And my mom calls me an hour later and says, that was your brother's ship. And I was like, well, how do you know that? I just emailed with him. He told me they were in the middle of the ocean. She says, no, I got an email from him on 
Monday saying that they were going to port in the Middle East and he's on the coal. And that was a coal. But what we were later learned that day at about 4.30 that afternoon, that my brother and 16 of his shipmates were killed by two Al-Qaeda suicide bombers as they were attacking the USS Cole as it was in a port in Yemen, uh, the port of Aden, Yemen, which is a country in the Middle East. And there were 39 others that were injured. And it was one of the most devastating days of my life. Because here's the context that I want to tell you, Anna, this is going to be easy for some to understand. We recently celebrated Veterans Day, and there are four generations of men in my family who are veterans. So my great-grandfather served in both world wars. My grandfather served in World War II. My Uncle Clarence was a Korean War veteran. My Uncle LG, Vietnam veteran. My dad was a Vietnam and Desert Storm veteran. And my dad's baby brother, my Uncle Lucky, was in boot camp when the Vietnam War ended. So every generation of men in my family had put on a uniform the same way my brother did. But three generations served in combat and they came home. Mm. However, in 2000, this is before 9-11, before most people had any idea who Osama bin Laden was or who Al-Qaeda was. My younger brother was murdered, killed by two Al-Qaeda suicide bombers when they attacked a United States ship. And when it happened, I can't even explain to you how many ways I was broken as a human being because, number one, I'm the oldest of four boys, and this is my younger brother, okay? And he was my biggest responsibility. i never forget when I was seven years old, my mom sat him on the couch beside me as she went upstairs to go feed the baby brothers. I have twins who are baby brothers. She went to go feed the twins, and she put my brother on the couch, and she says, don't you let anything happen to him. Don't you let him fall. Don't you let him get hurt. If anything happens to him, it's going to happen to you. You know, that's mm-hmm. the way moms tell older siblings. And so I took it very seriously, responsibility of looking out for my little brothers and helping to shape their lives and help them to make good decisions. So to lose my brother in this way was devastating. And I really wanted to give up on life and just go home and hug my mom, my dad, and protect my two baby brothers from any harm. And it was just incredibly impossible. And I can't stress how hard it was. And here we are 21 years later, I still feel the pain of that day. It doesn't get any better. It just gets different. But instead of giving up on life, I use it as fuel to try to make a difference in this world and to try to make sure that I leave a legacy. And, you know, you talked about Booker T. Washington's quote of success. I have a second quote comes from Dr. Miles Monroe. And that quote is success without a successor is a failure. And if you don't use your gifts and your talents to leave the world a better place for those that come along after you, you might be successful in life, but you will never be significant. And so in the wake of my brother's tragedy, I don't want to chase success. I want to chase significance and making a difference in people's lives. And that's why I do what I do every day, helping leaders build a better culture in their workforce and their organization. And in honor of your brother, his name, is it Sharon? Was that his yeah, name? Sharon. Yeah, Sharon, Sharon is his name. Sharon yeah. Gunn. He was about 22-year-old brother at the time, five years younger than me when he yeah. was killed. And so I uh, lost his life at 22. He's buried in Arlington National Cemetery. So if you ever mm-hmm. visit Arlington National Cemetery, he's in Section 60. And as his grave marker is 7763. He would love to see you come by and uh, pay your respects if you're ever there. Yeah. And a note to my producer to make sure that goes on our show notes and we'll honor him in that way. What was your favorite thing about Sharon? When you think of him, what first comes to mind? 
Two things come to mind. Number one, the Oakland Raiders, or now the Las Vegas Raiders. He was a diehard <laughs> Raiders fan. I mean, when I say diehard, I mean, like, when they lose a game, he would, like, take his jersey off and throw it on the floor and just... I mean, this is a brave it. man to be passionate about the Oakland Raiders. All right. All right. I see. <laughs> yeah, that's the first thing. And the second thing I would tell you is hip-hop music. So a lot of people don't know this about me. Hip-hop is who I am. Leadership is what I do. And a bond that my brother and I shared was a love of hip-hop music and culture. And one of the honorable things that happened to me in the wake of his passing is that they did a memorial service at the pier where his ship was based out of. And all of these sailors who survived the cold came off the ship and said, where's Anton? And I'm like, I don't know these guys at all. And they came over to me and they said, we just want to shake your hand and give you a hug because your brother was the hip-hop guru on the ship. He knew everything about everything that was hip-hop. And he said that he learned it all from his big brother, Anton. So we just want to meet the man who taught Sharon about hip-hop because Sharon taught all of us every day on the (laughs) ship. So those are the two things. The man behind the hip-hop. That's amazing. I love that. I have talked about this with other people too. And I actually remember this came up at the conference I am by education, a nurse practitioner. I worked in the emergency department for 10 years and I've seen death in a unique way. Many times I've experienced Mm -hmm. personally. I've also experienced professionally in many different capacities. And I've had the unique opportunity to witness the visceral response to death and loss is loss, but there is something that is uniquely different about sudden traumatic loss, especially again, loss is loss is not to diminish grief, but the fact is it is different. And I have seen that. What would you say to somebody right now who is struggling with loss? And it could be many different forms, whether Mm -hmm. it be traumatic or just the loss of a loved one, especially now with COVID. I mean, this is a reality for more people than it has been in a very, very long time. What helped you move forward through loss? Yeah. So great question. Loss is hard at any time, but when you lose a young person, I mean, a parent losing a child yeah. or losing a sibling or a loved one prematurely, I mean, we all know that at some point we all are going to die, but whenever it's premature, unexpected, it is indelibly more painful than anything we've experienced. What got me through is number one, my faith. I believe in God and and know that he is the author and the finisher of my life. So that's the first thing I would say is you got to have some faith in some higher power because we all are not here by ourselves and there's a design for us and we just got to know what it is. But the second thing that got me through is that I tried to honor my brother in the way that he lived. And so what do I mean by that is that I tried to think about those fine ways in which He lived and made a difference in people's lives. And I tried to duplicate that. So here's an example. Sharon was 21 years old. And I think he was about 20 years old at this point in time. Now just think about the average 20 year old. What do they do when they're 20? You hang out with your friends, you party, you play video games, you do all of these fun things that tend to be very selfish. They're about you enjoying yourself. But where Sharon lived in Atlanta, Georgia, there was a husband and wife couple that lived across the street from them. The couple was in their late 20s, early 30s, and they had three young children. And one day, Sharon was taking out the trash, talking to Brandon across the street. And Brandon says that since his kids were born, him and his wife 
hadn't been able to go on a date because they had three young kids. Mm. So Sharon felt awful that he couldn't take his wife out on a date. So he volunteered on a Friday night to say, I'll babysit your three kids while you guys go out on a date and enjoy the town. I mean, I live right across the street from you. I'll either come to your house or they can come over to where we are. And he went to their house. And a 20-year-old served a husband and wife couple, a young firefighter, and I forgot what his wife did for a living, but allowed them to go on a date. Mm -hmm. So the word, the operative word in my family has always been about service. And I started to think about what Sharon did, and he always found a way to serve. Even before he joined the Navy, he worked at a hotel and he was always helping to serve the guests and picking them up for the airport and taking them to wherever they needed to be. I mean, he was that kind of guy. So how I found my way through is to find that thing that your loved one used to do the most and enjoy the most and that you remember them fondly for. And you find a way to replicate that in your life. And for me, it was finding a way to serve other people. And when I did that, I found an incredible amount of healing for myself, mm-hmm. that I was able to make a difference in the lives of other people. And so service became my prerequisite of leadership. And that's what I did. Hey, parents. Yeah, you. Are you looking for a podcast your kids will really love? Well, we made one just for you. And for us. As genuine, all-natural kids ourselves, we know what makes a fun and interesting podcast. So we decided to make it ourselves. Every show is packed with interviews, stories, and on-the-ground reporting. We have interviewed everyone from scientists to Grammy Award-winning musicians to NFL quarterbacks. Listen to Wild Interest wherever you get your podcasts. The whole concept of serving to heal is such an interesting dynamic because I think, again, having experienced personal loss myself, it is so easy to become inward focused in your grief. And that's not wrong. And it's important to heal and to recognize what you have lost. When I lost my best friend to breast cancer not that long ago, and we were best friends for 20 years. And one of the things that acutely struck me is that all of the memories that just the two of us shared, we were best friends in high school, we were roommates for all four years in college. I was now the only one that held those memories. And Mm. for some reason that just like really hit me and it was hard to not get out of my own head to feel like it's it's so easy for it to turn around and become about Mm -hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And that concept of taking the grief, and at some point, you have to be able to turn it around and serve. And I love that that was true of his life organically. But I think I would challenge anybody listening that even if that wasn't true of your loved one organically, that whole concept, there's so much power in that idea. Serving other people will help you heal and honor your loved one in the meantime. So I love that. And listen, if there's any 20 year old Sharon's out there, you can feel free to buy the house next door. <laughs> I love you need, that. need a babysitter. <laughs> Amen. Yes. I'll take, I'll be surrounded by 20 year old Sharon's come on over. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, you know, you said something else very important is to acknowledge that the pain is real. Like, amen. um, yeah. I would say that I did take some time for myself. And another thing I'm going to say that a lot of people don't want to acknowledge and starting to acknowledge more. You might need counseling. And I will tell you, I had a counselor that helped me through the early days of grief. And one of the things my counselor told me is take time to grieve. If you need to take a day or two or three or a week, take 
the time that you need to grieve. I mean, I never forget one day I was driving to class because I was in graduate school and a song came on the radio that emotionally just hit me because it was Sharon was connected to the song. And I literally pulled over in a gas station parking lot and I cried in the car for 20 minutes. And when I finished, I felt better, but I still didn't feel like going to class. And I gave myself permission to turn around and go back home. Mm -hmm. And I actually went home and I stayed home for about an hour. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to do something that Sharon and I would do together. And I drove, this is dating myself. I drove to a record store or a (laughs) CD store. And I literally stood in the store for an hour, thumbing through old records, digging in the crates, as, as Sharon and I would call it, finding old classic albums and songs that had great hip hop break beats over top of it. And so I spent the day kind of giving myself some therapy, took time for myself. And so take the time for yourself, but do get back to trying to make a difference for other people because you will find some healing because there's other people going through pain. Some right. people's pain are wor- is worse than yours. And I know right. you feel like your grief might be the most devastating pain that anybody could ever have, but trust me, somebody is going through something worse. Sometimes it's the people who survive. I mean, like Sharon's shipmates, the ones that made it back, sometimes could live a life of pain blaming themselves for making it out and that they feel guilty that they didn't do their part because they made it out. They didn't make the ultimate sacrifice. So recognizing that their people are having pain and find a way to make a difference for them. I love that. Well, service has certainly been very true of your life as well. You went from the O-line to office. Mm -hmm. In 2008, you became the first African-American from your district to be elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives. And I have to ask, was there a particular experience or moment because most people don't wake up and they're like, I'm going to go into politics. I mean, I have never once in my life woken up and been like, you know what? I think I want to go into politics. So how did you go from being a young college athlete to this idea that I want to move into politics? How did that transpire? Yeah. So everything's tied in, in some way. So first I'll tell you this quick short story is that I got married in 2004 Excuse me, I got married in 2000. In 2004, we learned that we were going to have a baby for the first time. <laughs> Did your wife just hear that? No, okay, we're going to give him some grace here. Yeah, you got it right grace. the second time. <laughs> yeah, give me some grace. I always talk about these together. So the main point is that when we got married in 2000, I made a simple mistake on my health insurance application. And so when we learned that we were pregnant, we actually didn't have maternity coverage. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up spending about $17,000 out of pocket to pay for the birth and delivery of our baby girl. And the problem for me was my entire life, I grew up with health insurance coverage because my dad was in the military. So I didn't even know that there was this thing called the uninsured or people called the uninsured people who didn't have health coverage. And it bothered me that because I made a simple mistake that the insurance company, you know, wouldn't do what they should have done, which is say, you know what, we know what you meant. When you check the box in the wrong place, you check maternity coverage under your name, but you didn't check it under your wife's name. We know yeah. that you can't use maternity. They didn't do that. They used the pretext of me making a mistake to deny coverage of services. And they did that for 50 million people every year. Right. And it just pissed me off. Really did. And I spent a fair amount of my career early in the career trying to be an advocate for people who are underserved. Mm-hmm. And I got tired of hearing politicians give platitudes to fixing what's broken in healthcare, but not really doing it. 
And so I said, well, why am I begging you to do the right thing when you can't seem to bring yourself to do it? Let me go in there and show you how it's done. And that's when I made a decision to run for public office in 2006. And I lost like everybody does when they run for the first time. But two years later, I was actually successful getting elected to the South Carolina state legislature. And I got in there and went to make a difference. And they got mollywhopped by partisanship and everything else that, that um, we all despise when we see uh, politics and public service. I, I love the, the way that you're communicating. I think this concept of politics can become such a heated word, and I'm guilty of it as anybody. I mean, let's, let's just be honest. It is hard sometimes when politics are mentioned. It's sort of this instant elephant in the room. Everyone's like, ah, you're kind of walking on eggshells. Yeah. Um, but I love hearing the perspective from people who have been in politics, because mm-hmm. I think it's true that it's so easy to lose the real life stories behind the people. Yeah, and for sure. people end up becoming a Democrat or Republican mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of Antingon and Anna Fulmer. You know, you lose sight of the people and the stories behind why they're there. And for the majority of politicians, I have to remind myself this there's a person, there's a story behind their passion. And Mm -hmm. if we heard those real life stories more, I think we would have more understanding for what they're attempting to do in politics. Mm -hmm. So I just really love and value hearing that real life story. Well, you know, I'll tell you this one last thing related to that. Please. There are real people. I mean, it's kind of like football. So, you know, people are hitting each other. People are getting thrown around. People are hitting each other. They're wearing different colored jerseys. They got different right. teams on their jerseys. But also, there are people underneath those helmets, and they right. come from different backgrounds. They have different reasons of why they wanted to be in the sport and be at the school. Some people are trying to get away from something. Other people are running towards something. And that's what I found in politics, that I met some great friends that I'm still close to. Matter of fact, there are like three Republicans that I'm really, really close to because we all are NASCAR fans, particularly Tony Stewart fans. And so we formed what we call the Smoke Caucus in the in the state legislature, <laughs> which is a group of guys who watched every NASCAR race that Tony Stewart was running in and was cheering him on. And But if you saw us outside of the NASCAR environment, you would think these guys have nothing in common. Yeah. He's a Republican. He's a Democrat. He's from yeah. this part of the state. He's from that part of the state. They went to Clemson. He went to the University of South Carolina. You would see all of these differences, but we're all real people and we all, you know, live different lives now. And um, I'm out of politics. A couple other people are out as well, but we still talk on social media and with each other have lunch every now and then. So there yeah. are real people behind everything. And we have to remember that everything in government is really about the people. And what I mean about the people, we are who we aspire to be. And so you want better government, then you got to aspire to be a better person. I think that's the way it is. I love that. And we'll dive into more of your expertise later, but at an even like smaller scale, what I'm hearing you say is that one of the simplest ways of bridging the gap between the great divide that we see in so many ways, whether it be politics or race or religion, is finding the common ground, being able to find something to relate to the other person to Mm -hmm. really bring out your collective humanity. Because at the end of the day, you whittle it all down. 
yes, we're diverse. We're really the same. We have the same fears and struggles. And that visceral emotion is really the same in all of us. And I just want to give a quick point to what you just said. I don't know if you know this, we're actually adopting our fourth child will be a little boy from the Pacific Island of Samoa. And yeah. And when we first, thank you. When we first introduced this to our kids, my son is seven and he was asking me, what will his baby brother look like? And I realized this was a really good question. And I was having a hard time in his little brain. Actually, this was a couple he was probably five at the time. So I Googled pictures and I brought up pictures of these little Samoan boys. And of course there was a lot of pictures of men and of all varying skin tones. They do tend to be brown. Some of them are much darker than others, but the point is we're looking at these pictures and I'm explaining what he might look like. And Caleb looked at these pictures and he said, how come the boys have long hair? And I said, in their culture, a lot of them grow out their hair. And so he's looking at these pictures and he said, mommy, I want to have long hair like my brother. And from then on, we started letting his hair grow out. We just cut it not that long ago because I couldn't handle it anymore. Hard for a five, six-year-old to take care of his hair. But it brought me to tears because in that instant, my child, my very white child, looking at these little boys in his little mind, he didn't see color as something that was going to be a problem for them or the struggles. He didn't see this different culture and the fact that his surroundings would be so different that he literally saw he wanted to have long hair like his brother. He instantly found a way to relate. And that was that. Mm -hmm. And it was just such a poignant moment for me that I need to be doing that in my own life. Even if I'm uncomfortable, we find a way to relate. So I love your example of that. Yeah. So I'll definitely add on onto that. I think the most important thing, and this is what I teach leaders in business. And when I work inside organizations, there are three fundamental questions. And we can talk about it three questions later, but the first question is you have to answer this for every person that you meet in life. And this is a question that we're all asking every day. I mean, every listener who's listening to your podcast is asking you this question. Every customer that comes into any business is asking this first question. And the question is, do you care about me? The second question is, will you help me? And the third question is, can I trust you? Now, that first question is the most important one because it's hard to care about someone that you don't know. It's hard to care about someone that you don't understand. So what I teach leaders to do and what I spent my time doing in public service and this is actually how I got elected, is that I spent my time showing people that I cared about what's important to them. And it's not about what you say. People don't want to hear your words. Oh, I care about you, Anna. Oh, I care about what's important to you. No, you don't want to hear the words. You want to see through their actions that you care about them, that they want to see that did you care about them. And so your son was showing that he cared by wanting to grow his hair, to reflect what he saw in his brother. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of us have to get to a place of literally showing people that we care. And we can't tell people that we care without actually doing something to show them that we care. And you mm-hmm. can't care about people you don't know. So you got to take the time to learn about people, learn their background, learn what's important to them, where they come from, what makes them tick, what inspires them, what motivates them, what pisses them off, what they hate about life, what they love about life, their struggles their highs, their lows, what their aspirations are. And so the best leaders are the ones that know the answer to every one of those questions 
on the teams that they lead. And I tried to do that in public service. And that's why I built the friendships that I built is because I asked the question, what's your favorite sport? Is it football or is it something else? And when those guys said NASCAR, I was like, well, hey, football is my number one. But guess what? I like NASCAR too. And I like Toyota and I like Tony Stewart and I like the 20 car that he's driving and, and I shop at Home Depot. And so all of yeah, these things yeah. become these opportunities to build bridges. Now, if they had said lacrosse, you might've been like, peace, I'm out. I got nothing. Yeah. I got nothing on the lacrosse. Sorry, okay. no lax bros here. We'll chat later. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, oh my gosh, there's so much. We'll unpack more of that in the second half. I could go on for hours on so many of these things, but I want to highlight you then had the honor to serve as the senior advisor to president Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that a position like that, there has to be pressure challenges. I can't imagine that politics are probably not the same in every position. There's probably added pressures here and there, and there's different expectations. And I think this is true of any career move or any goal that we have in life. There are challenges that come with any, whether it be a lateral move or kind of a move up the ladder. Do you have any stories in that incredible experience of times where you made a mistake, where there was a significant learning curve and you had to laugh at yourself, shake it off, or maybe you had to cry first and then laugh and then shake it off that you could share? Yeah. So (laughs) way too many. I'll put it to you that way. (laughs) Here's what I would say, first and foremost, in anything in life for any leader out there, I have this phrase that I use, the higher the level, the bigger the devil. And Mm -hmm. what do I mean by that is that the higher you go up in leadership, the bigger the obstacles that you will face, the enemies, the detractors, you name it, it will be the higher you go up, the bigger the devil. So there are lots of spotlights when you work for the president of the United States. I mean, it was uh, the greatest privilege of my life to serve my country in that way and also to work for the president of the United States on an important issue like healthcare reform. I'm actually like an Obamacare expert, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I will tell you about it is what made it really, really hard is that it was difficult for me to see people attack Barack Obama the way they did, Mm. knowing that we were only trying to do good and improve healthcare for those 50 million people who were like me screwed in 2004, right? And it was uneasy for me to see the anger and the hostility and me not take some ownership of that. And so I'll never forget one day, I literally had to sit in my car and cry Mm. because of an experience that I just had. So part of my job, I was kind of like a spokesperson on healthcare reform. So I would go on these radio shows, I would go speak at conferences. And so I'm on a radio show, I'm on a calling in on the phone to this radio show. And the radio host accuses me, accuses the president, accuses the Affordable Care Act, that if you sign up for Obamacare, that means you're consenting to have the government inject you with a microchip so they can track you. Okay, That's literally what the radio host said to me. And I was so flummoxed that I couldn't believe that I was supposed to answer that question. And of course, Mm. my job, I had to answer all questions and be honest and direct with people, but I couldn't really keep a straight face. And I did my best to answer it, but the guy just pounced on top of me even more. He just kind of like beat me up and he says, 
Well, thank you for coming on. And he said something else snarky. And then I got out of the call. But I sat in the car and I cried because I really just wanted to cuss him out. And just think about how that would have looked for me to be on a national radio program, working for the president of the United States, cussing somebody out because they said something that they heard in a rumor mill somewhere that is in fact based or anything else, but you having to respond to it. And it was hard for me at that moment. And I wanted to quit. I literally wanted to quit. I was like, this is for the bird. I can't keep this up and I'm taking on too much of it. I'm owning too much of it. And what I ended up doing is really taking a deep breath and recognizing that you can't save everybody. And I mean, you can't save everybody. The flight attendant on every flight will tell you before you try to help someone else put on their mask, you put your mask on first. And that point is, if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be any good than anybody else. And so I was looking at how this was impacting my physical health. I had gained Mm. like 200. I was over well over 200 pounds when I started to work for the president, but I gained another 50 pounds. So I was over 300 pounds at that point. I was not in the best shape. I was eating bad. I was stressed. And I was like, here I am trying to talk to people about healthcare and why they should access healthcare, but I'm not in good health. And so I realized that my devil was how I was taking care of myself and that I couldn't do the point of teaching and sharing a good message with everybody if I didn't reflect the change that I wanted to see in the world. And so that's when I made a commitment to focus on myself. And it gave me a sense of peace. I stopped worrying and stressing about things that people would say. And again, just did everything that I can to share the best information, the right information, facts, to give people a chance to make a decision and fit in their lifestyle, fit their budget, and help them out of the situation that they were in. And I started talking to the person that Anton used to be when I was in 2004, having my first child and didn't have health insurance coverage. And that's where I focused. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's so important for anybody hearing this to take away this idea that regardless of these very heated sides, whatever it is, whatever topic we're talking about, true change is going to happen and transformation happens when we start to see people's hearts and not just the way they're voting, not just the policies that they're trying to put in place. Or Because I think, I don't know this, but I think this is true of other arenas, but even in politics, I can imagine that no matter which side you're on, there's probably a degree of sympathy and empathy that you have for each other because you understand whether you're a Democrat or Republican or even just like two CEOs of different companies who may stand on very different sides of the equation. There's a level of empathy you have for each other because you understand what it's like to -hmm. truly have a good heart intentions and yet you're slammed on all sides. So again, I think it's that sense of grace And seeing people's hearts, not just, yeah, labeling them with whatever it is in the arena that we're talking about. I think you're right. The the word grace is probably one that we all need to give a lot more of. I know I have been doing that in the middle of this pandemic that we're still coming through. It's just to have some grace. I mean, with hospital workers, healthcare workers in general, or food and beverage industry. I mean, how many of us have gone to a restaurant to pick up food and it took longer than we thought it was going to take. I mean, you got to give people some grace. I mean, it's just, it's hard right now. And so we got to take the anger out of our hearts and out of our minds and just have a little bit more grace and just be a little bit more patient and recognize that we're all humans. We all make mistakes. 
And we got to have some empathy for people. And that's what I try to do in every aspect of my work. I love that. Well, we're going to take a really quick break, but we come back. Stay tuned for a speed round of this or that with Anton. We're going to learn a little bit more about Anton and practical ways that we can become admirable leaders at work and at home right when we come back from this break. Save time. Get practical inspiration delivered to your inbox every month with exclusive access to the premier digital women's health and home magazine. For just $14.99 a month, you will get delicious and nutritious recipes, essential cleaning and organization hacks, must-have product recommendations, helpful fashion ideas, practical DIY tutorials, creative fun for kids, home decor inspiration, stress-free entertaining tips, evidence-based health and wellness advice, productivity challenges with prizes, exclusive access to upcoming and perfectly empowered podcast guests, and exclusive access to bonus printables and templates on podcast show notes, giveaways, and so much more with this exclusive membership, the Imperfectly Empowered Journal. Reclaim your heart and home with a digital health and home magazine full of practical strategies you can actually use. Want to try an issue for free? Visit www.hammersandhugs.com and click on the Imperfectly Empowered Journal tab to sign up for a free issue of the Imperfectly Empowered Journal today. We are back with Anton Gunn. Anton, we're going to play a speed round of this or that. You get two options. You don't have to think about them too hard. And we will get started with burger or hot dog? Hot dog. Ooh. Cookies and cream ice cream or mint chocolate chip? Vanilla. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm, Okay, so we're going for or. I love it. Vanilla. Okay. Vanilla. I'm a little surprised. I'm not going to lie. Sprinkles, anything on your vanilla? Nothing. There's so many thoughts coming to mind there. I love that. Vanilla. Shattering, shattering ceilings here. NFL or college football? College. Do you have one team that you especially follow? I'm a Gamecock fan. I played there at the University of South Carolina, but kind of growing up, I was a Michigan fan. I had a cousin that played in Michigan, so I like Go Blue, but I don't like Jim Harbaugh, so... I wish we get a new coach, but go ahead. Kindle or old-fashioned book? Old-fashioned book. Would you rather be a ninja or a pirate? Ninja. Mm-hmm. Personal yacht or private jet? Private jet. What's worse, laundry or dishes? Dishes. At a movie, candy or popcorn? Popcorn. All right, and this one, we're bringing it back around full circle. Rebel without a pause or fight the power? Rebel without a pause, for sure. <laughs> I love that. I actually listened to those on YouTube. Awesome. I was like, oh, okay, okay. So we were talking, oh my gosh, we've unpacked so many amazing things already. We could easily expand this way longer than an hour. But you are known for the concept of socially conscious leadership. Mm-hmm. What is socially conscious leadership? Why is it important? And how does it contribute to that sense of an admirable leader? Yeah. So very quickly, the context of socially conscious leadership recognizes that in the American workplace, people experience injustice every day. I mean, when I mean injustice, I want you to think about it in this way. You get dismissed or disrespected by a colleague, coworker, or a boss. Sometimes it might even be something as bad as discrimination or some other adversity, harassment of some sort. It happens every day in the American workplace. But when it happens, nearly 50% of people never even knew that it happened. 
I mean, you could be on a team of people and you could be going through the greatest adversity of your life, but half the team has no idea that you're experiencing that level of adversity. If they don't know any better, then they can't do anything about the injustice that you're experiencing. But then you have another 30%, 35% really of people in your organization who might've saw you face that injustice from a colleague or a coworker, but they don't do anything about it. They literally saw what was wrong, but they make excuses about why they can't help you. Well, I don't work in HR or I'm not the manager or that's a different department. What can little old me do about a big problem like that? That's another 35%. So if 50% didn't know any better and they're living in oblivion and 35% didn't do anything because they got paralysis by analysis, that's about 85%. But then you have the 10% of people who literally are the perpetuators of this level of injustice because they literally believe that by keeping things unfair and unjust in the environment, that they benefit in some kind of way from it, that they benefit morally, socially, economically, financially, that, hey, you know, I'm going to leave things the status quo the way it is because I'm on top. And so I'm going to let people face injustice and everybody else not know what's going on or feel disempowered to do anything about it. So 95% of people sit by and either don't do anything about injustice or don't even know what's going on. Some even perpetuate. But I teach leaders how to be socially conscious and in the 5%. And what do I mean socially conscious? That means do your part every day to have awareness about what's going on around you. You have that awareness by building diverse relationships with people who are different than you, who share a different perspective. So if you're a CEO and all you do is talk to people on the executive team, you're socially blind to what's going on in your company. Yeah. You need to be talking to frontline people. Okay. If you're a parent and you don't spend time having real conversation with your children, you're socially blind to what's going on in their lives. Mm. You lack the consciousness of what you can do to actually help them to be successful or to deal with the adversities that every one of us faces every day. So I teach leaders how to have that social consciousness about the workplace to have no blind spots, if you will, by diversifying yourself, spending time with people who are different, literally asking people questions. What can I do to help you today? Or what can I do to make this a better place for you? The more questions you ask, the more conscious you become about those things that are broken. And the more you can begin to take action to do something about it. Because I fundamentally believe that as a leader, it's your responsibility to make things right. And there's never a wrong time to do the right thing. I want to point out for people listening, when we talk about the concept of leadership and Anton, you kind of highlighted this already, but you may not hold a professional leadership role, or you may not see yourself as a leader in your workplace. But the fact is, if you have children, if you have nieces, nephews, siblings, a little neighbor friend down the road who's over at your house with your kids, you are in a leadership role. We really are all in leadership roles and you need to start thinking like one. And I'm speaking to myself as much as anybody. And what really resonates with me, Anton, about what you're saying is a year and a half ago when just the whole Black Lives Matter movement and I was hearing stories that I had just never heard before. Mm-hmm. And to make this personal, you know, I was that 50% a year mm-hmm. and a half ago. I just didn't know. 
Mm-hmm. I would certainly like to think that in my heart, I'm not racist. I absolutely am imperfect and I live by the grace of Jesus. But the fact is I was in that 50%. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is I see that playing out over my life in the last year and a half is I was in the 50%. I'm now listening to these voices, some very well-spoken, some mm-hmm. not so well-spoken, some basically just making people even angrier and creating mm-hmm. even more of a divide, but some really, really well-spoken men and women, and I'm hearing their stories. So I move now from this 50% and I can no longer remain there because now I'm being told I'm ignorant. Well, now I'm no longer ignorant. <laughs> Right. Like now I have to choose to become more involved and to try to educate myself. And I think that next step that I saw I needed to take was what you just highlighted is that sense of forcing diverse relationships, even if it feels one as, as a white woman to be completely transparent, there's times where you feel like you can't ask questions because mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. unsure. Will it be offensive? Will it be taken? Sometimes I think you feel like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Mm-hmm. But when you don't ask questions, it creates even more isolation and misunderstanding. And I had to humbly come before the Lord and be like, God, search me and know my heart and give me the insight to be able to ask questions and learn from people. And what you're talking about, forced relationships and forcing those relationships. I think it's a healthy concept. Where can I find people and ask questions of them to learn? That was Mm -hmm. not very well-spoken, but as you're saying that, I'm literally seeing my story over the last year and a half Mm -hmm. and kind of how I'm processing that in my own life. And I appreciate your very clinical, well-spoken approach to what that needs to look like. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll just add on to that, that all of us at some point in time in our lives are in the 50%. We're living in oblivion mm. about something. So mm. I'm a man. There are plenty of times in my life that my wife will tell me, you're living in oblivion about what women go through, right? Yeah. Plenty of times. And my 16-year-old daughter also makes me aware that I'm living <laughs> in oblivion about things that young women go through, okay? So we all are in the 50% at something in our lives. I mean, like, so many people weren't aware that police violence against African-Americans were real until they saw George Floyd with a knee on his neck for 10 minutes. However, I was aware of it in 1991 when I saw Rodney King get beat 56 times by four Los Angeles police officers. So at some point in time, we all are in the 50 percent and we come out of the 50 percent. But once you start to become aware that injustice or unfairness exists in some way, shape, or form. The question is, do you become paralyzed by what you now know, or do you begin to empower yourself with information, with tools, with resources, with relationships to say that, you know what, I can't do everything on this issue, but there is something I can do. I can vote. I can have a conversation with my mayor. I can go meet the chief of police and ask him how many incidences of police violence have we had in our city or our town? Or I can go to a different community center and volunteer my time. I can go to a new church. I can go to somewhere to be around people who have a different perspective and a different world. And again, go back to those three questions, answer those three questions for those folks. Mm -hmm. Show them that you care about them. Show them that you're willing to help them and that you can be trusted. And that's what a great leader will do is that you use the framework of those three questions to build new diverse relationships 
and it'll raise your social consciousness. It will give you the ability to take action and to make a difference. And sometimes it's not about changing the world. It's not trying to do the big thing, but it's about making a difference for one person, that new friend that you made or that friend that you had 20 years ago that you hadn't talked to in 20 years that you went to high school with or you went to middle school with or that you played sports with. I mean, there's something that you can do to make things right. And it starts with getting out of your comfort zone, getting comfortable being uncomfortable. I love the getting comfortable being uncomfortable. I don't usually shy away from feeling uncomfortable, but I also, sometimes I am too prideful in that. I don't want somebody to think badly of me. And so sometimes that keeps me from just keeping my mouth shut because I truly do want to love on people's hearts. But sometimes you have this little narrow window of an opportunity and you feel like you don't have enough time to really build that relationship. So I'll just give one little example of, I did this, this is really embarrassing, not that long ago, but I was seeing African-American men and women wearing these shirts and hats that all said, God is dope. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, I had no idea. You're laughing because there's probably even a lot of white people listening to this being like, seriously, you didn't know what that meant, but I didn't know. I could have Googled it. That would have been, but I just didn't know. And so finally I asked one of my girlfriends who is an African-American and she had a shirt on it. And I said, okay, I have to ask. I do not know what is God is dope. And she laughed and it was like that instant. And we know each other. There's a mutual respect. And, but it was like that instant. I see you white girl, kind of a laugh. But that's just a raw real life example. And instead of just making assumptions and being kind of taking something and associating it with a culture without full understanding, it was just a little way in which I wanted to understand. I was curious, was that a good thing or a negative thing? I didn't know what it meant. So when you say be comfortable being uncomfortable, that is just a real life example that we just need to ask more questions and to the other person, I would say graciously give an answer. <laughs> she laughed at me, but I also fully understood. She was just found it funny. Anyway, all that to say, ask the questions, be willing to give a gracious answer, be willing to hear a hard answer. Let's rewind again a little bit. What do you say to those leaders who are listening to this, who are answering the questions, they're thinking through their own lives? What is the most practical way to start moving to a greater position of leadership, to be more founded in not just your own skills, but in that sense of you are admired as a leader. You kind of touched on those questions a little bit, but practically, what can we be doing to make that move in our lives? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that anybody can do to really want to have a bigger impact as a leader. And I have a lot of resources that I've made available for people that I have on my website. So if you go to antongun.com slash admired, I'm going to give you a one page worksheet to help you to become a more admired leader. It's really a worksheet that will help you to get some tools, some information, some way to think about yourself as a leader, to think about the role that you play inside your organization, inside your community, to make a difference, to get a deeper connection and to have a bigger impact. And so if you go to antongun.com slash admired, there's a worksheet there for all of your listeners that will help them to be a better leader. And we're going to have that on the show notes on my blog at hammersandhugs.com. I want you guys to all check that out. And Anton, if people want to follow you and be able to just keep track of what you're doing, where can they find you? You can definitely find me at Anton J. Gunn on the following social channels, Instagram, 
Twitter, Facebook, and the place that I spend the most of my time is on LinkedIn. So if you're on LinkedIn, send me a message, connect with me there. I love to help you and your organization become a better organization by building a world-class culture with diverse, high-performing teams and great leaders that everyone will admire. Anton, I am so grateful that you're here today. I admire you as a leader. You have already been so influential in my life. I'm grateful for you in a world where so few people in leadership positions are actually living out what they preach. I thank you for being somebody who truly in so many ways is living out your message. And I just pray God's richest blessing over your home, your wife, your daughter. And I look forward to chatting again. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity and it's been a pleasure to be with you and keep doing the great work, keep having an impact and making it. Thank you. We need you in the world. So keep working hard. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Imperfectly Empowered Podcast. It is my honor to be here with you. I am so grateful for each and every one of you. If you are watching on YouTube, be sure to click the subscribe button below so you don't miss a show and leave a comment with your thoughts from today's episode below. If you are listening via your preferred podcasting platform, would you help keep us on the air by rating our show and leaving an honest review of your thoughts from today? In case you haven't heard it lately, your story matters and you are loved. This is your host, Anna Fulmer, and I will see you here next time on the Imperfectly Empowered Podcast.